Hey, before this episode begins, I would like to let you know that it is exclusively brought to you by Epitaph Records. I know it's strange. There's a record label owner that isn't sponsoring this show, yet he's interviewed. I digress. Epitaph Records and specifically the release from Refused. Oh my gosh. 17 years. Their new record, Freedom. They're on tour with Faith No More from July 30th to August 7th. Visit officialrefused.com to buy the record, tour dates, and more. Now on with the show. everybody welcome this is another episode of 100 words or less the podcast i am your host ray harkins and this is record label month exciting stuff right so the entire month of july i'm focused on people that are putting out records and i know that sounds very uh, you know people of that ilk have been interviewed before but not like this so the guest this week is chris wren from bridge nine records and if i am not mistaken and please Please, internet, correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously the internet does that extremely well. It is the label's 20th anniversary this year, which is amazing. Bridge Nine, for those of you that aren't in the know, is one of the leading, premier, whatever adjective you want to put on it that's nice and cool, hardcore punk labels. And I mean, they've released so many bands, like Have Heart, a seminal, institutional record label. And Chris, I don't know him at all. This is the first conversation I've ever had with him, even though we've emailed with each other before and traveled the same circles. But I digress. Let's do some business pleasantries, niceties, what other adjective you want to use on it. You know, I'm, I'm giving a lot of control to you, the listener. You can put whatever adjective you want to use on it. And it's like a choose your own adventure book. We'll do that. We'll talk about Chris. We'll dive into the show. We'll have some fun. Okay. So recently I have been on summer break, I guess. This, this week that I'm releasing this show, I, I'm in Mammoth. I'm taking a nice little vacation with my family, and uh, hopefully it'll give me some clarity or relaxation or, or something, even though I'm working through it all because, you know, that's, I just can't give up being attached to a computer in some capacity. But recently, I've just been feeling so much energy. I've been like waking up at five in the morning, hitting the gym, eating right, just, just doing it doing the damn thing. And I feel really, really good about it. You know, when you see a result in your body and you start to feel, um, I don't know, just engaged in life. And I, I just feel great about it. So I'm really, really pleased of the results. And hopefully my enthusiasm will, will bleed out to you. And then you will be like, you know what? I need to get my life in order. I need to get my shit together. Let's do this. And then you'll change whatever thing you need to change in order to make you feel better. And then hopefully just keep it up because when it becomes a lifestyle, and habitual, that's when things get really, really interesting and exciting. There's that. Hasn't been too many shows recently, which is fine. The summertime tends to consolidate into music festivals. And, you know, there isn't a ton in Southern California that I'm super amped about. So that's fine. I'm just engaging with music on, on this level. I've been playing around with Apple Music recently. I don't know if any of you are purveyors or pay attention to the online streaming services that are out there and the war that has erupted between Spotify, RDO, every single other platform you can think of. I've been using RDO for quite some time and uh, Apple Music is, is pretty compelling. I like it so far. I don't know if it's going to make me make the full switch because basically they give you a three-month free trial. And um, I don't know. We'll see. I'm playing around with it. I enjoy it so far more at a later episode, whether or not it's worth your time or investment in it. But anyways, Chris Wren, like I said, runs Bridge Nine, also runs a company called Soli's Tees, which he hasn't really been speaking about too much until recently in the past couple of years because there used to be a very strong line in the sand of not really being associated with one another. But now Chris has realized like, no, I, I can talk about that side of the business. So we talk about that. We talk about a lot of other amazing things. I'll be honest, this conversation was pretty inspirational because, you know, I, I, I paint Bridge Night into a corner with my descriptors, you know, of being a hardcore punk label. And obviously that's what they, they tread in. But hearing how Chris started the label, tried to get the attention of people in the greater Boston area is amazing. I don't know. It's just a really, really cool story. So he talks about, you know, wheat pasting and all this other sort of like guerrilla marketing stuff, even though that word isn't necessarily used as much anymore. It was a thing. It was a buzzword for quite some time where, you know, big corporations were like, we need some, some boots on the streets to do some wheat pasting and paste some signs up that will get some exposure and get our brand going. 
but Chris did it just all on his own, and I don't know. Great story. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Chris, and I will talk to you after the jump. Late '90s is when um, you know I I I'd been going to shows, I'd been playing in bands, and then uh, I tripped across Bridge Nine just because I was working at an independent record store. You know, you guys were just through Lumberjack, and I started bringing in a bunch of your stuff, and it was one of those things where I felt like I kind of uh, tripped on a treasure trove in regards to uh, what Bridge Nine had been doing and all the releases you've done. Is it one of those things that you kind of you know still maybe notice from? Uh, you know, younger kids getting into the label where it's like once they discover it through, you know, band like whatever, Defeater or Have Heart, and then kind of go down the rabbit hole and start to listen to more bands. Do you uh, do you still kind of noticing that happening? Yeah, we, you know, we definitely used to see that. Obviously, we welcome it. You know, clearly as a, a label like Bridge Nine, you know, we, we kind of have our niche and we, you know, we push against the walls of it. Um, but for the most part, if you like one of our records, you're probably going to like 30 or 40 of them. You know, we definitely try to, you know, when, when people come in, you know, give them, you know, enough reasons to want to check out some of the older stuff that we've done. No, for sure. I mean, that's because I mean, I, I'm sure that you can identify with this as well, where it's like when you, you know, are younger and you trip across, you know, a record label or, you know, a band, you just want to consume as much as you possibly can from that thing just because you're like, oh, man, if this is good, then. There's got to be something else out there. Well, and that's also, I mean, that's why, you know, that's what record labels, you know, especially like independent labels have always been good at, you know, you kind of cultivate, you know, a certain either sound or a certain scene or something that, you know, where it's all a degree of separation away from each other for the most part. So, you know, when somebody stumbles <clears> upon it and, and they identify with it and they, thankfully we have so many other bands that you might be into. Yeah, for sure. You're like, hey, this is just the leaping off point. <laughs> yeah, it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, exactly. Um, so backing up, you you yourself, you were born and raised in uh, Connecticut, correct? That's correct. Where where what city yeah. in particular? I went to high school and and grew up in Glastonbury, Connecticut, which is central Connecticut. It's near Hartford, and I would go down to like New Haven and New Britain were kind of the like the local scenes that um you know had a lot of the shows. Sure. And what was your uh, what was your family structure like? Like you know, mom and dad, brothers and sisters. What were uh, you know? How did that look? Yeah. Um. So I have two two younger sisters. My parents are together. You know, we uh, uh, one sister that's about a year younger than me, and one that's you know, maybe four or five years younger than I. You you were you were the trailblazer. You were the oldest. I, I was the older one, and uh, it's funny because uh, I actually you know was you know my my little sister um, went vegetarian before I did. Um, you know, so she kind of helped get me over to that side of things early on. But, you know, I was the one that kind of got her into, you know, some of the music and stuff. Like, you know, she, I mean, she saw Warzone. She was, you know, got, got pretty into hardcore and stuff. And it's funny, even now, you know, when I send her some of the stuff that's a little more outside of the box, she's like, no, just send me the heavy stuff, you know? And, and she's my little sister, but she's like, you know, 30, I don't know, 35 at this, 34 at this, at this point. Yeah, yeah. No, that's funny. So, so she she got keyed into the whole vegetarianism thing through another channel, or was it through like punk and hardcore? She no, she got it into it just because she loved rabbits when she was like eight. Got into it organically. She had really had no one, you know, directed her. She just said, "Hey, you know, this isn't right," and and followed that path. That's that's funny that I'm sure once you started to get exposed to like oh wow a lot of these bands are singing about this yep. like my, my sister my sister must have been onto something <laughs> she was ahead of the curve yeah uh, and so what, what did your uh, what did your parents do as far as uh, work was concerned like did your mom stay home to raise you guys and your dad was out in the field or were they both working yeah so my dad did computer sales um, so he would travel quite a bit um, he worked for companies like digital and you know stuff like that personal computer type stuff. Um, for, and, mm. and then my, uh, mom, she had part-time jobs, but for the most part, she, you know, stayed at home, raised the three of us, you know, pretty much, you know, when she worked for like a, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the jobs she, she worked at a, some nonprofits, you know, she worked at a, a law firm, you know, I think doing like kind of management stuff. For the most part, she was, she was there for us when we got, you know, got off the school bus. 
Right, right. You know, what kind of what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you were, uh, you know, growing up? Like even, you know, pre-high school where obviously you didn't really, you know, you don't really have an identity, but you, you know, get into things. Were you an active dude? Were you kind of, you know, sticking to your indoor activities or what did you find yourself being as a kid? I was I was definitely a very active kid. You know, I was I got into skateboarding really young. You know, I would ride my my BMX bike everywhere, spend whatever time I could outside, you know, played a little bit around with video games when I was younger, but, you know, for the most part didn't. So, you know, yeah, it's pretty much just, you know, it's pretty active childhood, I guess. Sure. Um, so we're, I, I always, I, just because, I mean, you and I are roughly around the same age, but generationally speaking, movies like uh, Gleaming the Cube and North Shore and all those like, you know, active sports movies, yep. were, was that something that, that infiltrated your, uh, your, your headspace or was that something that you just you didn't see until years later? No, no. I mean, I, I love Gleaming the Cube, you know, as, as a, I, mean, I can't remember how old I was. I'm 39 now, but you know, whatever that came out, that was actually probably half the stuff that Christian Slater did at that time. I was, you know, psyched on. Yeah. I find it so funny because it's like, you know, those, those movies were such a singular focus for like, youth to look at and be like dude like this has hit the mainstream now like so many people are going to know what this thing is that i got into just by you know default or whatever and it's like but then yeah like you said you you probably looked you know everybody was looking to christian slater for being like dude so is that that's how i should dress now is that what i should do like is that trick cool now? oh yeah you know that inspired me to um when i was in high school i did a little underground newsletter you know and it was kind of you know with the, the whole like um what was it the, the the whole you know record state you know a radio station that he did that was kind of like an impetus for you know doing something to kind of like speak my mind and, yeah the the two movies like the gleaming the cube and then pump up the yeah, volume that we're talking yeah. about those those two movies like they could have been the same character yeah <laughs> but like just appealing to two you know the music side and then obviously the skating side well, that's it's interesting it. i mean a teenage you know teenage chris ren definitely identified pretty strongly with both of those characters you know, so, and it's funny because, so I did, I did this, you know, little single page kind of folded newsletter in high school. And that was, you know, originally influenced by actually seeing that movie. Um, and then later when I moved to Boston, I did a newsletter for, you know, interviewing bands and it was uh, based on the format that I had done for the you know, for the newsletter in high school. So it's kind of all rooted back. You don't even really understand those things that you're doing as developing like skills that you'll use later on in life. Mm -hmm. Those are just like something you do. And then like when you revisit them, you're just like, I learned something back then. That's true. (laughs) You've mentioned in previous interviews where you went to, did your entire family move up to Vermont? And then like you, that's where you went to high school or what was the situation there? No, no. So I went to high school in Connecticut and graduated in 1994 and so the fall of 94 i moved to vermont just myself to go to to go to school i was at the time in high school i was really heavily into snowboarding so you know i went to a small liberal arts school um in vermont so that i could you know kind of focus on school but also you know focus on snowboarding and so i was there from 94 till 98 um when i graduated Okay. Got it. Got it. And so when did, uh, you know, not getting too far ahead, but so when did kind of independent music start to infiltrate your, uh, your ecosystem? Was that like in early high school, junior high? Yeah, that was probably, you know, I mean, I, it's funny. I was a, I came from the metal side of things, you know, uh, as a, as a hardcore kid, I guess, you know, growing up, I, I originated, you know, listening to a lot of Roadrunner releases like, you know, Sepultura, Obituary, Deicide, um, or, you know, originally having coming from like Metallica and Slayer and stuff like that. So I was, you know, kind of into the, some of the heavier stuff at the time. And, and like you said, you know, you'd find something like that you're into, like I, I found, I think it was, I think rip magazine, which was kind of the trendy, you know, metal magazine at the time had advertisements for, I think it was for obituary. So I got, you know, I, I grabbed an obituary cassette when it came out slowly, we rot record and, you know, was like, holy shit, this was, you know, I had listened to heavy things or at least I had thought until I heard that. And I was like, all right, this is on the next, on another level. Um, but I was into it and I started, you know, following all of the Roadrunner stuff at the time. So that was probably my first time, like really trying to follow a label and it just kind of spiraled from there. As you started to bring this stuff home and obviously expose your, your parents to the, the weird world that is obviously metal, um, were they uh, were they concerned? Oh, they, <laughs> were they yeah. Like, 
Yeah, okay. I mean, they were, and they were definitely, you know, I remember when I got the, you know, license to Ill Beastie Boys record, you know, when that came out, you know, whatever the mid eighties and that disappeared within, you know, two days, you know, just my parents were just like, yeah, you're not having that. Um, I mean, I, I remember, you know, them complaining. I had like Ozzy Osbourne, you know, cassettes and they were just, thankfully the, uh, the stuff disappearing stopped, but you know, they just, they didn't get it. They didn't like it. They didn't care for it, but they also were somewhat supportive. I mean, one of the first shows that I, that I saw was I went to the, um, what's called the uh, clash of the titans tour that was with slayer megadeth anthrax and allison chains and you know so that was i was 15 years old and that was kind of a, a just a, a crazy show to go to for kind of your first concert i guess and um right. and I, I know they drove one way so you know they were somewhat right. supportive <laughs> sure sure yeah. yeah that's definitely that's one of those shows where it's like people um, I'm sure would look at you saying that and be like, Oh, cr- like you're just saying that just because that's like the proverbial coolest show you could possibly <laughs> go to. But it's like, like, well, no, that's the reality that I lived through. <laughs> that was, that was the first one. And it was, it was crazy. I, I, I remember I, I met, uh, Lane Staley, uh, from Alice in Chains in the crowd. Like he was just walking through like, you know, where the t-shirt vending was. And, uh, he gave me, um, like he, he signed my jeans, you know, I was 15. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Um, of course, you know, it was just, it was, it was a very cool show to go to. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's incredible. Well, that's cool that, that I can see from your, your, your parents' mentality. It was like, you know, they're trying to plug a hole in a dam and then all yeah. of a sudden another hole happens and they're just like, oh, well, it's too late. The, 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 the dam's been broken. Well, that's, and it's so difficult, you know, that when, when you're a parent, you know, when, when you've got, you know, like a kid, you don't understand what they're into. You know, like it doesn't look, you know, my parents hated. I remember they were like, you can't have any T-shirts with skulls on them. You know, when I was like 13, 14, like I remember I wanted like some Metallica shirt that had a skull on it. They're just like, no. And, just, you know, they were really, really focused on like, don't wear your baseball hat backwards because hoods, you know, when they as they knew it grew, growing up, you know, hoods wear their hats backwards. So they were kind of focused on some of that. So, right. You know, yeah, they didn't, they, they, they had the best intentions because they were operating off of all of these, um, you know, these predispositions that they had yep. when they were being raised and they were like, Oh wait, our, our son can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do love those. I mean, you mentioning skulls on a shirt. I, I completely identify with that as well. And I think it's so funny. Um, now, I mean, I know you're a parent yourself and yep. I have a four year old kid. And so it's like these you don't realize how arbitrary those things are until like you become a parent. And then you're just like, why the hell did they focus on skulls <laughs> on a shirt? Like what? Like that seems inconsequential to like looking at the lyrics that are in these records. Or oh, whatever. No, no doubt. You know, and I was probably, you know, I was like, you know, 13 years old, like, well, screw you, mom. I'm going to grow up and start a record label and make lots of t-shirts with skulls on them. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. You just, you send her a care package. Just be like, here you go, mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's hilarious um and so then as you uh as you started to become exposed to more music um and did you did you try to adopt the aesthetic of metal as well were you like you know growing your hair long and have super tight jeans and that sort of stuff not so much you know i like i had a jean jacket and you know i i tried to grow my hair long you know mostly to for like you know i wanted like the long bangs of like you know the, the skateboarder style at the time you know, and that was, you know, a constant battle, you know, at some point they just gave up and, you know, and later in high school, I grew my hair long and had a ponytail and, you know, they, they kind of like, all right, whatever. Yeah. It was, you know, I was, I was like the, I, I was too young at the time to like really adopt like the, the, the head banger look that a lot of, you know, the older kids had back then, you know, but, um, I was transitioning more into hardcore kind of like in the beginning of, you know, focusing my interests on, on hardcore bands more like in the probably early high school. I remember because I started high school in 90 and I remember in 1992 consciously saying, I'm not listening to any more metal bands or buying any more metal records. I'm only going to listen to hardcore as, you know, like, I don't know, I was probably 16 just because obviously I identified more with it. Um, but I missed out on a lot of great metal records after that. You know, I, I mean, the last Slayer record that I have is Seasons in the Abyss. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that came out not just Slayer, but like you know, other metal records that I just didn't even give a chance. It, it, uh, you bring up an important point. I definitely think it's, uh, I mean, obviously this is symptomatic of being a teenager, but you always have the all or nothing approach. You're yeah. like, it's either this or that. There's no gray area in between. I can't be a metal hardcore kid. <laughs> yeah. I need to be one or the other. Yeah, it took it took a few years for me to kind of like soften my 
views on things and kind of cycle back and you know go back and, and start checking out other stuff. Right. Realizing like, wait, I can still call myself a hardcore kid, but I can listen to other music. Sure. <laughs> right. Um, were, were studies a part of your, uh, your, your activities? Like, did you, you know, kind of, I guess, apply yourself at school or did you necessarily kind of care about that at all? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I wasn't a bad student, you know, I mean, I, I had you know, the ADHD and, and all the dealings that, you know, came along with that, you know, when I was, you know, when I was in high school, but, you know, I was really focused on art. Um, I ultimately went to college for like to get a bachelor's fine arts degree. Um, so that was kind of always my thing, you know, on one level or or another trying to express myself. Fine, fine, fine arts. The, uh, I mean that, that's usually somewhat attached to theater in a way where did you do theater? No, no. Was that, that was, that was a different group of kids, but you know, I was pretty focused on art. Okay. Got it. And what, what medium were you attempting to express yourself? Um, a fair amount of illustration, you know, I did some three-dimensional, you know, found object type stuff. Was that something that, um, I mean, so you obviously studied that for when you went to college, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was my focus, um, you know, with also focusing on, on graphic design. Uh, what, uh, what kind of spoke to you about that, especially just because, I mean, at, at that time too, graphic design was changing so rapidly mm-hmm. just because I presume, you know, the advent of, you know, the digital medium as it were, um, what was kind of, uh, I mean, it's interesting from your perspective because probably you still had the, like you said, the sort of, you know, tangible things like, you know, drawing and painting and that sort of stuff. And then you had the digital manifestation of it. Was it, uh, was it weird for you to live in like two headspaces or was it cool just because you could express yourself? Yeah, I didn't, I don't think I found it to be weird at the time, you know, because with my dad being involved in, you know, computer sales, like we had a computer in our house from when I was very, 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 you know, young, um, not necessarily design stuff, but there was like the Microsoft publisher, you know, things. And like, I'd create signs and images and stuff like that, you know, on a computer. So transitionally wise, it was, it wasn't that hard. Um, but there's definitely a disconnect between obviously the fine arts side of things and the graphic design side of things. Was that a, was that a career that you were, I guess, kind of focusing in on as far as like the graphic design sort of stuff as you started to, you know, grow near the end of college? Yeah, I think that was, you know, that was the idea. You know, I, I mean, I enjoyed painting and I enjoyed, you know, uh, creating, but um, I think I, I knew, like I, I did an internship at a design studio and I knew that that, that was, you know, if I was going to be able to, you know, pay my way with things that that was going to be the direction I'd have to go in. And did you, um, you know, throughout high school and college, like obviously, like you were mentioning, you became more engrossed with the hardcore scene. Um, did you, did you ever play in a band? No, no, never. I never played in a band. And that's, that's probably the, the big reason why I put out a record, which ultimately led to starting a label. Um, because at the time, every kid I knew was either in a band, did a fanzine, did a backpack distro. Um, you know, there was everyone this obviously the hardcore scene is very DIY. Um, the one that I was a part of, you know, that was, you know, no different. I mean, everyone kind of did their thing. Um, and I didn't, you know, I, I was at the time, like I, I remember I designed cassette, like demo covers for some friends. Um, I made like buttons, you know, like I remember in, like early on, I had like one of those badge a minute button presses. So I'd make, you know, buttons for my friend's bands. So for me, yeah. you know, at the time, you know, I, I think I was like a sophomore in college um, when I started thinking about putting out a record and actually friends of mine were like, you know, you should do that. There was, I was at a small school. There wasn't a lot of kids that were really into what I was into, but thankfully there was two guys that, you know, were a couple of years older than I that, you know, had come out of kind of like the New York, um, you know, CBGB matinee kind of scene. And so I, I looked up to them and, and, you know, we, we were on the same you know page and with a, a lot of our interests. And so, you know, I think at that transitional time, they were just like, Hey, you, should, you know, you should put out a record, you know, friends of ours did it, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And they gave me a phone number and a name of someone to, to call and ask questions. And that's kind of where it started. The sense of, uh, obligation that you felt towards, you know, I guess contributing. And it, it's definitely something that, you know, obviously still exists today where it's like, you know, either people, you know, dedicating themselves to many different mediums, whether it's like, you know, their own blogs and podcasts and everything else. But I, I, I find it so, uh, so interesting when you do feel that, that compulsion, you know, that compulsion, not only to like contribute, but then like create. And so I find it interesting that you, uh, were like, yeah, like, I don't, I don't, want to do a band, but I want to contribute this, this other way. Cause usually 
obviously once you start to see hard, you know, hardcore shows, you're just like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to play in a band, even though I'm terrible. It doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. Did you do, so did you ever attempt to like play an instrument or anything like that? Or was it basically just like, nah, not interested. Yeah. You know, you know, when I was little, like, you know, I tried saxophone, went nowhere with it. You know, I tried drums, you know, and, and didn't have the, you know, follow through to, to practice. Um, so it just, I don't know. I, I think my attention span back then was, was a lot shorter. So I never really followed through with it. And, you know, at the time, um, I had, you know, so I was living in Vermont now at this point and I, you know, there wasn't, I mean, there was, there is obviously a, a pretty good scene in Vermont, but I wasn't too familiar with it. I was living on my college campus. Um, and I'd only ventured out, you know, up to like the Burlington area where there's you know, a, a pretty good scene there um, a couple of times. I didn't really know a lot of people. And so everything I ident- identified with was back in Connecticut. So that was kind of part of the idea was like, you know, maybe I should try and put out a seven inch with, you know, my friend's band because that'll give me something to, you know, to work on, to, to stay in, in touch with people from Connecticut it'll get me back to Connecticut more often to do stuff. You know, it was an opportunity for me to, to kind of maintain a connection to my hometown scene. Yeah. It was your, it was your pipeline. Yep. And so then, uh, so then after you graduate, like you said, you, you know, you put out your first, first record in, in college. And then, um, you know, where did you, uh, where did you go? I guess after, um, after you graduated and like kind of, you know, entered the working world and were, uh, were, requested to be a part of adult society or did you ahead uh, after that you know the, the first two records that came out when i was at college you know were with connecticut bands and then tr- records number three and four were both from boston air bands and so when i i graduated in 98 um both of these records were coming out um i think one had just come out and one was about to come out um and they were both with with boston bands and you know i didn't really have any i don't know direction you know, for where I wanted to end up. A lot of kids from Connecticut either end up in Boston or in New York. And the uh, overwhelming number of people that I knew that were, you know, into hardcore from my hometown all ended up in Boston. Um, in fact, when I moved to Mission Hill, there was probably at least a dozen kids that had gone to high school, you know, with me that were, you know, real into the hardcore scene um, that had ended up there. You know, they were going to school or had moved to Boston to, to live there. So, you know, when I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go, I was like, well, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people here already. I didn't know a lot of people in the Boston scene, but, you know, I, I fair, a fair amount, but I didn't know a ton. So I, uh, I was like, you know what, this is probably just more comfortable. Um, I, you know, I don't know where this label's going because I, I only released, you know, three or four records at the time. But it just seemed like, hey, the two bands I'm working with that are active right now are from Boston. So you know, I ended up moving there and moving into an apartment with a kid that had gone to my high school. Sure. Sure. Yeah. There was, you felt there was some semblance of uh, you know, lack of a better term, like a safety net where it's like, okay, there's a little, there's, there's a community here that I, I, I know exists, but, and I could plug into, it's just a matter of going. There. Exactly. And so then uh, you, uh, you've mentioned in previous interviews uh, where you started to work for Big Wheel Recreation. Like, did you intern with them or did you actually like, you know, go work for, for Rama over there? Rama gave me a job straight out, um, but that took a little while. So I moved to Boston in 98 and actually I, I had broken my leg skateboarding um, with friends from college the day after we graduated. We all went skateboarding one last time and I broke my ankle. So I unfortunately had to go, instead of moving straight to Boston, I had to go back to Connecticut. You know, it took like six weeks, you know, of just laying on a couch, waiting for the thing to heal. Um, And then when I moved to Boston, it was on crutches, which, which sucked because I lived in Mission Hill. And, um, (laughs) you know, hung out, I hung out, you know, for the first few weeks, just kind of, you know, in Boston. Um, But I ultimately ended up getting a job at, uh, I think it was like this, some snowboard shop because, you know, again, like I I had been snowboarding hundred days a year, you know, for four years up in Vermont. Um, I wanted something that was going to connect me opportunity to do that. Um, and so I got a job at just like some random snowboard shop. I wasn't ready to get a career. You know, I just, it was something that I knew. Um, so I, I did that and it sucked The the guy that ran this shop was like some former windsurfing pro and he was just the biggest douchebag I'd ever dealt with. And, you know, I just, I hated working there, but it was something that I knew and identified with. So I, I actually, I worked there for maybe, I don't even know, maybe four months. And then I was, I was actually fired for having a poor work ethic. I had, I think around that time I had started selling bumper stickers. 
remember I'd, I'd gone to a Hot Topic store where a friend of mine had been the manager and they had all these, you know, kind of silly, you know, black and white, you know, edgy stickers. And they sell them for like three bucks or something. I was like, I could make these. So my friend gave me the contact info for the buyer at Hot Topic at the corporate office. And I just, I sent them like I just, on my, like my little Microsoft publisher computer, I made a, a sticker that said, I heart ska. And it was a black and white checkered heart. And I was not, I mean, you know, I liked a couple ska bands, but it wasn't something that I was into, but I was like, people will buy this. So I just printed it out on my printer and I mailed it to their buyer. And I said, Hey, if you want these, they're a buck each. And they replied, I said, yeah, we'll take 60 of them. And I was like, Oh shit. You know, I, I can't just make 60. So the, the printer that I used that was local, actually in Vermont at the time, I, um, I said, Hey, you know, I'll make 60 of them, but it's going to cost you, you know, 60 bucks, you know, like a buck each. So like, I'm not going to make any money. So I was like, all right, whatever, we'll send it. And if you like it, hopefully they order more. And they did. And they ordered, you know, hundreds or actually ultimately I think thousands of them. And, you know, I started making other designs. I had one sticker that said like big brother is watching you and the neighborhood watch eyeball. And they, I mean, they sold thousands and thousands of these stickers. So I didn't really need the money from the shitty snowboard shop job. You know, I had something that was kind of helping underwrite me and also at the same time helping underwrite some of the releases that I was putting out. So for a little while after losing that job, I didn't, you know, I wasn't necessarily in a rush and I had my eye on a job at Tower Records because they had this huge Tower Records store on the corner of Newberry Street in Boston. You know, it was a, it was a cool store. It was in a, you know, a cool area. And, you know, I knew, knew that there was artists that that worked in that store. So I got the contact info for the the manager and I um, sent him these cut and paste, like found object looking like, you know, color copies saying, Hey, I want a job. And I did it every week for like three or four weeks until finally he was like, all right, come in and I'll talk to you. And I ended up joining a group of four other artists in the basement and we were responsible for the next year or two. I, I worked there doing window displays and, you know, all sorts of, you know, end caps that were, all of them were custom painted and, you know, carved out of styrofoam. And it was really actually a really cool job, you know, the kind of job that I don't think, you know, in this industry exists anymore because <clears throat> it's crazy how much of a budget we had to just make whatever we wanted to promote these albums. That's a, that's incredible. Yeah, no, I I mean, there's multiple things I want to hit on in there, but that was such an important component. I mean, it's the same way as obviously like, you know, Forever 21 now. It's like the window displays, like they invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into that because that's the that's how people get into stores. Sure. It's the same idea. It's the same idea as what you were doing, promoting the new, you know, the first Deftones record or whatever. It's like, you got to have this crazy looking display thing to catch people's eyes. And then they'll be like, wow, that's a, sure. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, hold on. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt this conversation that we're having, but I'm, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our amazing sponsor of this particular show, partially just because I'm so excited. And secondly, because, you know, they, they've given me a little money, but that doesn't lessen the enthusiasm that I have for this. So it's Epitaph Records. And if you don't know Epitaph Records, first of all, you're dumb. Second of all, do some research, just Google it, and you'll be able to find an amazing roster of bands, but they wanted me to speak to you about a very important release from a band called Refused. You can dive back into the archives. I want to say it's like episode 90-ish, 80-ish, something like that, but I had Dennis Lixon, the vocalist of the band, speaking to me, and it was a great conversation, and I was so excited to have it, but they're back. You know that by now, right? And you know that they probably have a new record out. It's called Freedom. No, you don't? Okay, well, let this song do the talking. The song is called Electra. Let's just listen to a little bit of it and then we'll talk about how good it is after.
So wow, that was the track. I saw them recently. They played a few tracks live, and it was great. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is a challenging record. It's one of those things upon first listen, you'll, you'll dive in and you'll be like, I don't really understand what's happening here. Like there's a lot of different things going on, a lot of different influences. And that's exactly what this band is all about. This band was not going to give you the shape of punk to come part two, even though technically everybody was wanting that. They're going to keep you on your toes. They're going to keep it musically inventive and interesting and multi-layered. That's what this record's all about. I pre-ordered it immediately, and if you have not picked up a copy, you need to do that. So go to officialrefuse.com. You can see tour dates. They're hitting the road with Faith No More. And honestly, if you see this, you have to see Refuse live. They're incredible. They haven't missed a step. They're still as engaging and entertaining as when I saw them back in the Showcase Theater days, 1997, when they were, you know, just scummy-looking hardcore kids. (laughs) They're on tour with Faith No More. July 30th to the 7th. They're hitting the East Coast area. So refused, officialrefuse.com. Pick up the record of freedom. Just do it, okay? I mean, you've always struck me as this person just on the outside looking in where you were very uh, industrious. You saw a need and you kind of filled it, you know? And like, even though the need may not particularly identify with like, oh, this is me as a person. Like, you know, printing stickers is not like, you know, me as a person, but it's it's enough to supplant me to be able to pursue the things that I want to do with this with this label or whatever else that I'm I'm interested in. I mean that's probably been the common theme, you know, that we'll probably hit upon a couple times in this conversation. I mean, you know, with so you know, with, with Tower, I mean it's cra- it really was crazy. They you know, we had there's a couple art stores you know, near the store that we had just open accounts with. We could literally go in there, take anything we wanted and bring it back to use those materials to create these you know, really crazy displays. I mean, I remember we had, so there was a, a Glendale in-store, um, I think in 99, and we created an entire, I don't even know how to describe it. Like it was like a dungeon. We would get these four foot by eight foot sheets of two inch thick styrofoam and, you know, carved out these rock, like kind of like cobblestone walls. Um, somebody made, you know, a whole bunch of us were working on this. Somebody made a, a big, a uh, pentagram, um, like, you know, uh, stained glass window, you know, and, and I, you know, we had these big upside down crosses with skeletons on them. Like it was insane. And he sat behind this huge throne, like, like table, like people would come up to, you know, get things autographed. And, you know, I mean, I, fuck, we, we must've spent, you know, a few thousand dollars just making this, you know, but it was no big deal. They, right for one, for one one display for an in-store it's yeah, great i don't know how many cds they sold i'm sure it was quite a few you know i remember you know we did one for rage against the machine and there was a line you know around the block six times you know so i mean it was it, they did these events where they draw people but then they'd also have ones where you know they'd have some unknown country artists that you know they'd, they'd go around the managers would go around and tell everyone hey you know they're having the in-store at 10 o'clock and you just take off your name tag and just go over there and get something something autographed. Um, you know, and that, that happened quite a bit. But um, you know, so yeah. working working at, at Tower, it was it was cool because um I had access to a lot of art supplies and you know, I would um at the time, I mean Bridge Nine only had a few records out, but I wanted to promote. I had very little, you know, little expendable income. So what I would do is I would go and make uh signage. So I um I remember there was a billboard in Alston that had, it was Garfield and it was one of the got milk campaigns and it had like this big Garfield is on the top of a building um, on Harvard Ave. And it said like nine nutrients, nine lives. And then it said got milk, big question mark. So I, you know, when I was working at tower, I took um, the same font and I made like this 10 foot wide wheat paste sign and just said bridge nine with a question mark. And, you know, at two in the morning one night I went up there and I wheat pasted, the, uh, the bridge nine logo or not the logo, but the, uh, you know, the, the font with a question mark over the got milk. So it effectively made this huge billboard into a bridge nine billboard, um, that nobody really knew except if you were in the know and it was up for, you know, probably at least a month. And, <laughs> you know, it was, it was awesome. You know, it was like this big, you know, big billboard that's bridge nine and, you know, 10 feet wide, you know, 10 foot wide bridge nine question mark, you know, and I did stuff like that, you know, on, the subway trains that I would take, the Green Line, um, have these cardboard kind of poster board advertisements that were maybe, you know, I don't know, 20, 
four or 28 inches square. And I would make those at, for, for bridge nine promoting like our proclamation CD. Um, <laughs> and I would, I would make those and I would just go on the train and swap them out. You know, I would actually go take their signs out, bring them back to, to tower in the basement. And I would, you know, paste over a bridge nine thing and then replace them. That's incredible. Yeah, so I would, I would do stuff like that. I remember I, I, we had a label maker, like one of these clear label printers with, you know, put like a black Helvetica text on it. And I, so I put bridge nine and it was the same exact font as the, um, T signs, you know, for like the maps, you know, where it says like all the different T stations, um, you know, in the Boston area, I made one of the same font and same point size as all the other stations. And I just put bridge nine on all the maps that I could find. Um, it happened to be, you know, my state, you know, like right next to the station that I lived at. Um, so I don't know if that was good. But, um, right. you know, for, I mean, for months, you know, there was this random bridge nine T station, you know, on all the maps. That's uh, <laughs> I just, I just like that. Um, I mean, it just showcases the, the, uh, kind of, you know, ingenuity and the, the fun that you can ultimately have in doing this stuff. Cause I think to this day, everyone's always like, Oh yeah, I want to, you know, I'd love to start a record label. Like, where do you start? And it's like, dude, that's the stupidest question possible. Like yeah. if I told you what I did, that it would make no sense to you. <laughs> yeah. It'd be, yeah. So yeah, all those stories you just shared, no one would ever do that and be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's how well, you start a record label. It, that's the thing. It wasn't part of a business plan and it wasn't really going to sell me any more records. It was just, it was almost because I was very interested in graffiti and I did some graffiti when I was in high school. And so that was an extension of that. Like this was putting your name up, you know, putting something up where again, most people, you know, saw that, didn't think anything of it, you know, it didn't sell any records, but the people that did know what it was or did appreciate the effort that went into it took notice. And so that's basically what happened with me and Big Wheel. Um, Rama, you know, was familiar with like the billboard and, and some of the stuff that I did. Actually, I think there was um, there's a, a bridge, uh, like a railroad trestle bridge across the Charles River in Boston. And everyone sees it. It's right next to Storo Drive, like the main kind of drive in and out of Boston. And so um, one night, you know, at two in the morning in the middle of the summer, I was an idiot. I went out there with a five gallon bucket of white paint, um, and a 12 inch roller. And then, you know, like a couple gallons of black paint and like a six inch ro- roller. And I went out there again, middle of the night, standing on a pipe out off, like that was like two feet off of the bridge, um, holding, like basically I had like the paint trays on top of this, you know, like five foot tall railroad trestle wall and I just shimmied across the whole bridge and whitewashed the entire thing, whatever, you know, random bullshit was painted on it. And then I went back and I, in huge, like, you know, five foot tall black letters, like bridge nine, you know, BHC 1999 across this bridge. Uh, and it was up for like six months. It was, it was the biggest thing. I mean, that you could possibly paint in Boston. And, uh, and that's incredible. That, it was, yeah, your, it was awesome. your own art, your own art installation. It was incredible. It was awesome. You know, and, and I, so I did that in, in 99. I actually later did it again in 2003 for the, uh, the sports company that I do. But at the time, you know, it was, it was big black letters for bridge nine. Um, and so people that were familiar with those efforts, you know, took notice. And again, so Rama saw that, um, liked it. His label was, you know, he was very interested in, you know, street advertising and guerrilla marketing and, uh, his own label was was doing really well at the time. You know, it was a hardcore based label that had very eclectic releases. I mean, he had a Jimmy World release and you know all sorts of interesting stuff at the time. So he asked me to to work with him and help him as I guess essentially his marketing director. And I had no background, no formal background in that, but I agreed. And um, I literally the next day drove down to New York to be introduced at a, a meeting at Caroline distribution as the marketing director um you know absolutely didn't deserve to be in that position but you know it was just an opportunity a door opened and i i went you know went through it yeah no that's that's really exciting when you when you do feel like you get kind of the keys to something cool and then you're like but i'm not really qualified to do this but you know i'll we'll i'll figure it out 
Yeah, that's basically yeah. what happened. The history of Bridge Nine is pretty well documented as far as obviously the releases and you know the kind of the ebbs and flows of of the you know uh, success of the label. When did you personally feel like all of a sudden this thing started to become like real, for lack of a better term? Whether it was because a particular record like sold really well, or whether it was just like, oh wow, like I can't believe we got this piece of press. When did you? Uh, I, I guess in your own head, start to uh, take it seriously, and not even from like a serious like you always took it seriously, but you know yeah. that that notion of like, oh, this is wow, okay, this is real now. I was very emotionally invested in it, so I, I you know, I, it was the biggest, greatest thing in the world to me. You know, very early on, you know, I, I was getting random mail order from kids from all over the world because I had a very fortunately strategically placed ad for like a straight edge sticker in the Victory Records catalog in '96, so. It, that was widely distributed and I was getting all sorts of random $1 bills with letters from kids, you know, asking for catalogs and stickers. Um, so, you know, I was, I was really excited about everything. And even though I only had a couple of seven inches out with regional bands that didn't really talk, everything kind of like, if there was like a kind of a tipping point for me, um, it was probably the spring of 2000 because um, multiple things aligned at the exact same time. And that's what allowed like everything to happen. If, if one of the things was missing, it probably wouldn't have taken off the way it did. But, you know, at the time I was living with American nightmare, you know, in the late, I think it was like fall of 99, you know, at that point I was like, look, if you guys put out a record or you do anything, I will do it sight unseen. You know, you know, I was, I was living with Tim West later moved in with us. Um, and I was, you know, pretty tight with those guys. So, you know, basically after they demoed and did stuff, they, they planned to do an EP. So I think that was, they recorded in the spring of 2000 for the self-titled EP. Um, at the same time, I started selling uh, bumper stickers to sports fans outside of Fenway Park in April of 2000. I think it was probably the same month that Ann was in the studio. I was also, had recently been hired by Rama, so I was working at a record label you know, I, I had somebody that was familiar with the process um, that I could talk to on a daily basis. So, you know, all all three of those things kind of at, happening at the same time allowed me to really kind of take things up a notch because, you know, I had I had um, instruction through Rama um, and also opportunities for distribution that I didn't deserve. You know, by working for Big Wheel, I, you know, which was affiliated with Lumberjack, I was able to get lumberjack distribution for the american nightmare record which i would not have gotten otherwise i would have been shopping that around you know calling cold calling people the same way i did all the releases before that had i not had that job and then also by having the uh selling you know actually it was yankees bumper stickers outside of you know, the red sox fans outside of fenway that was making real money very quickly and i was you know there was no banks offering loans to hardcore kids to put out punk records so you know i had an opportunity to raise money um as i needed it you know i literally would just go down to a game sell stickers for an hour and a half and make you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars and uh you know every game and i would take that and put that into recording mastering you know whatever i needed at the time manufacturing um so all those things came together and of course american nightmare being a, a band that literally right out of the the gate you know there's interest and and obviously you know everyone knows their story so you know we were yeah. thankful to be a part of the very beginning of that i mean yeah the 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 this the uh, sports stuff that i mean with solely tease that you that you do yep. is definitely uh it, it's funny because i think a lot of people don't seem to like connect the two the fact that you know you are the proprietor of that and the proprietor obviously of of bridge nine but it's to me it seems uh i mean you've never hidden that fact but it seems like obvious and like the way that you put it there where it's just like well yeah like i mean it's great if you can run two or you can run a very successful business and then a record label that obviously at times is not successful at all mm -hmm. but one can like one can help the other uh to get through the lean times and uh i just think it's a it's you know a very good circumstance that you were obviously able to get yourself into well that and that's what allowed it to happen because you know um, it's as anyone who's done a record label knows, even, it, it, even the most, you know, um, labels that are considered to be successful or big or whatever, it's still a grind and it's still very hard to, you know, make ends meet. And for me, you know, I was very fortunate from, from pretty, you know, early point, 
that I didn't have to depend on it financially. So I, I never really was, I was never really drawing a paycheck. There was probably 10 years where I didn't take a dollar out of bridge nine. Um, and when the, the times that I was able to, it was always like the most, you know, smallest amount just to be able to have something, you know, put it to, you know, put away for a rainy day sort of thing. So thankfully I was always able to, you know, depend on, you know, the money that I was making from sports fans. And I never hid really the the connection between the two, but I didn't really promote it either for many, many years. Um, even though, I mean, all the guys that were selling, you know, stickers and, and t-shirts for me outside of the game, they were all hardcore kids. Every, I mean, anyone that was in Boston from 2000 on, you know, for the, every band at least had at least one member that sold t-shirts for for me and for and for my friends that were also out there um you know at, at some point so there was a lot of crossover you know with with hardcore kids and um it's funny it, it for for years i kind of like did them both independent of each other and didn't really promote the fact that there was any connection um until i realized that there was a lot of people that were into both you know in boston if you're a red sox fan you know you likely have you know, if you're if you're a hardcore kid and you're into you know if you're like the Red Sox, the Bruins, you likely have a bunch of Bridge Nine T-shirts in your closet, but you also have Sully's T-shirts, and you might not even realize the connection. Um, but we've we've been more open and open about it, you know, over the last couple of years. Yeah, no, I think it's important too because ultimately, it's it, they're like I said, I mean, they're both supportive over one another, but like the the idea that you can obviously help people in bands like you're talking about to where it's like, well, yeah, like you can't have a quote unquote real job, but dude, here you go. Like you'll be able to make a, you know, a couple hundred bucks while you're off tour and help me out. And everybody wins in that situation. So it's like, yeah, it's great. Well, that's it. It was not, not only bands, it was interns, you know, so we would have kids that would come in intern at Bridge Nine mm-hmm. and say, look, we're not going to pay you, but if you need some money, come out here and sell t-shirts and stickers, you know, and, and you'll actually make pretty decent money. And so a lot of kids, you know, took us up on that. Yeah, no, that's incredible. Something that I've noticed uh, primarily just in my own personal music experience as far as working at record labels like, you know, Century Media and No Sleep and a bunch of other places. But the um, the difficulty that I've always seen in working with hardcore bands is, uh, you know, obviously the not only the fickleness of the genre uh, as a whole, because obviously it's like one year, one band is like the coolest thing since sliced bread. Seven months later, it was like, oh, dude, that that's not a cool thing anymore. Yeah. And granted, that hardcore is just a microcosm of pop culture in general, but not so much that point, but the point that very few hardcore bands exist past like their second LP and kind of the the notion that when you work with these bands from a record label perspective, you're investing thousands and thousands of dollars into them. So I'm sure there's been uh, some frustrations on your end in regards to just like, oh man, like I can't, I, I, from a physical financial resource, I can't pour money into this band because I don't, I don't, I don't know where they're, they're going to be or walk me through your headspace as far as like how you've kind of, you know, had to evolve your, your thinking about certain bands. Well, you know, and that's the, that's, that's the gamble. You know, um, I've never been a gambling person in respect to cards or, or, you know, casinos. That's, that was the thing for a lot of kids in hardcore um, yeah, I mean, I remember going to Posse Numbers and there was, you know, lots of people, you know, playing blackjack and, you know, in the aisles, you know, at, at the, uh, you know, at the fest and there would be kids playing with, um, you know, just like going down to Foxwoods. Um, but basically, you know, at the time, a lot of kids were into gambling and going to um, like Foxwoods and that just wasn't my thing. You know, like the kids, my, I had a roommate that would go down for the entire weekend from Friday to Sunday and just gamble all weekend. And, you know, he'd come back you know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever. Um, but I just never saw the appeal in it. And I think, you know, I'm not really into that, but the reality was I would be gambling on a, on a record or a band on literally on a, on a weekly basis. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's tough. Some, some bands, you know, it comes back and, and they grow or, you know, they're just about to take off and they break up, you know, or they're something that you're really excited about and it just doesn't connect with as many people as you think it would. And, you know, it's hard to recoup what you put into it. I mean, but the reality is it's, you know, it's, it's just it, everything that we do as people that are involved with putting out records is it's a, it's just a gamble, you know, and you hope for the best. Try to make, yeah. you know, educate every decision as you can. In hearing your, your story laid out more in detail, um, 
it seems like the, uh, I guess the business side of things uh, always seem to come somewhat naturally to you, or is that something that you just obviously had to kind of like learn through doing and learn through through failing, or or did you have a proclivity to that like when you first started to kind of wrap your head around the business world? I think it was all, I mean, it was all trial and error. You know, I, I didn't have much of a focus on business at all when I was, you know, formally in school. You know, I took accounting for two days and dropped out of the class. Um, you know, but I was always interested in selling. You know, when I was um, 15, I would go to the local golf, you know, uh, golf course and go through the, the sides, you know, of all like the, the courses and greens and I would dig out as many golf balls as I could find. I mean, I remember one night getting caught by like the grounds people in the pickup truck. I think it was a sting operation where they, they caught me on the island at one of the holes with a big net scooping golf balls out of the water. Um, and what I would do is I would take those and put them in egg cartons and sell them across the street, you know, for five bucks a dozen. And it's right. probably when I was 14 or 15. And before that, you know, I remember I, I made a flyer that was it said like Chris helping hands or something. And, you know, for, you know, no jobs too small kind of thing, raking leaves and cutting lawns. And um, so I, I always kind of had a hustle in me. And um, so, you know, when I think probably one of the big, biggest business lessons for me was when I started going out selling outside of Fenway, you know, because I had to really get in people's faces and, you know, kind of like, you know, not only just go from selling stuff by my, on my own, but then, bringing in three, four, 10 people to, um, to sell the stuff for me and, you know, giving them commissions and kind of, you know, coming up with the structure that ultimately turned into Sully's. Cause no one, when they start something has the ultimate goal of like, Oh, I can't wait to be a boss. Yeah. Like, Oh, that's going to be so exciting. Yeah. And so then when you have to figure it out, that's what it, it could be a little daunting. And that, that, that part of it sucks. Right. You try to make the best of it. Two last things I want to hit on before I let you go was uh, one, you've obviously proudly proclaimed that, you know, you're, you're, you've been straight edge for quite some time. Mm-hmm. I, I myself also apply the label and I still am myself. This is more so I'm curious about obviously how you've, obviously the movement has changed and, and your own personal views for it have probably changed. But, you know, growing into an adult, like I often ask myself, like I don't necessarily, I guess, need to call myself straight edge anymore. But personally, the reason why I still do is because I feel like if I just you know, turn into a quote unquote typical adult by saying like, Oh, I don't drink and you know, don't label myself or whatever. Um, like the people, the people who have, I have viewed as misrepresenting straight edge in the past, uh, will win. Like the dumb kids will win. The people who have been like super violent towards straight edge will win because I have dropped the label myself. I don't know if you go through, uh, kind of evolutions in the way that, you know, you personally uh, apply the label to yourself. You know, when, when you're early, like, I know for us, at least generationally, I mean, I know things are a little bit different, but like, you know, in the mid nineties, you know, when you're, you know, straight edge, you know, I probably had a dozen t-shirts that said, Hey, I'm straight edge basically on them that I wore, you know, on a, on a daily basis. Um, and it's a big part of your identity. And I remember on the front of my car, I had a friend that made uh, die cut, you know, vinyl stickers. So I had drug free across the windshield. Um, which is ridiculous, you know, like who would do that now? And, or at least, you know, at least at my age, obviously. But, um, you know, I was so proud of it. And I was so into it. And, um, you know, I don't know. I think it, they, I remember one of the guys that actually told me, hey, you should put out a seven inch was also someone that said, you know, the guys that, you know, wave the, uh, you know, it's always the, the newest kids to straight edge that wave the banners the highest, you know, because uh, you really you're just trying to prove something or you're trying to, you know, identify with something. And then at some point. You know, you just realize, well, this is just a, another life choice. It's not that big of a deal, you know. And and at some point, you know, you just don't, you know, I, I don't have any really have any straight edge t-shirts that I wear. I mean, I actually when I was thirty, I got three X's tattooed on me. That was my first, you know, and, and only straight edge tattoo because I felt like, all right, you know, I'm thirty and this is cool. Um, and I still believe in this. You've, you've earned it. Yeah, you know, I, it. It's, you know I've, I've earned it at this point. And I think I'm going to stick with this, and and uh, so I did that and. You know, uh, it, and now, uh, you know, I'm almost 40 and it's it's just something that, you know, I, I still identify with straight edge. I, I, I believe, you know, and I refer to myself as straight edge. Um, I'm still excited about you know, straight edge and, and everything that I feel has benefited me. You know, it's it just becomes less of a big deal, obviously. Yeah, no, no, it's a, that's it definitely makes sense because yeah, you you uh, you don't need to be uh, proselytizing straight edge as much as you did when you were younger because obviously you were feeling like you know you were you had a crusade that you were trying to sure. <laughs> to go on. 
Um, and kind of on that same notion, um, you you are a, a semi recent father. How old is your your child now? So uh, my daughter is she'll be four in July. So she's yeah, she's under four years old. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's because I, I remember uh, Stephanie telling me that you were were, were having a kid because my my kid he's he just turned four in April. Oh, that's so awesome. like she was. Yeah, she was like, oh my gosh, Chris is having a kid too. Anyways, but, um, and this is, again, this is more projection curiosity that I'm asking this question, but, you know, obviously as you grow older, being still connected to uh, this music and something that is so inherently tied to youth, and obviously you're getting older and you continue to get older and you continue to be farther removed from that beyond your connection to the record label, you know, how, what, what's kind of, you know, I guess kept you connected beyond just like, you know, the, the business interest in obviously keeping bridge nine going, um, what's kind of, you know, kept the, the fires burning, so to speak, as cliche as that sounds. You know, I, I think it's probably just because, you know, I, I don't know the bands, you know, like, I mean, if you don't stay connected, you know, there's always the guys that are like, they only like what they liked at the peak of whatever they were into, you know, and those are the records and the bands that they always go back to. But because I've always had this, you know, vested interest in, you know, doing the label i've always it's made me look for bands and it's always made me look for for stuff that i identified with and bands that i liked um and i've been very fortunate to work with people that you know i mean i'm not in the trenches as much as i used to be but we have people you know that work here that you know that get turned on to bands that they bring them into the office and then we all get excited about um so it's it's allowed me to kind of keep you know remain you know kind of keep that kind of excitement about finding new bands that I think a lot of people, you know, lose in their twenties. Yeah. The way that I always describe it personally, it's like it, as you get older, it just takes more work, but as long as it's work you're willing to do, then you'll always be connected. It's just a matter of like, if you decide to be lazy and you know, if people, if you do, that's fine, but it just takes more work. That's all. True. You know, obviously, as as a new father and watching a, uh, a a child grow, you know, has that shifted your your perspective on kind of you know work and kind of because obviously, as a multiple business owner and how all consuming that is, um, you know, have you tried to back yourself away from certain things and kind of you know take things slower or how have you uh, you know adjusted your lifestyle so to speak? You know, I, I think I've, I've honestly, I think I've taken on more projects. Like I have. I have more stuff that I'm trying to balance now than, than I have had, I think, you know, over the years. Um, but it's just, it's a matter of trying to find that balance. You know, I, um, I'm very fortunate, you know, a lot of the dads that I know, you know, they, you know, they kiss their kid in the morning and then go off to work all day. And then they see them when they're about to put their kid to bed. You know, for me, since my daughter was probably around nine or 10 months old, um, I've taken her every single morning, seven days a week, um, usually from eight o'clock until about 11 in the morning. And we have our routine, you know, we, uh, we go, we get breakfast, a uh, coffee shop again, seven days a week at the same place. They actually even have our, our names on one of the tables. Um, and we go to the, there's a, a pretty, there's actually a really nice museum in Salem called the Peabody Essex Museum. So, you know, we go there, you know, usually a few times a week um, and we just kind of have our thing. And so I, I feel like I've been able to connect with my daughter more than most and, um, you know, it's, I, I don't take any of that time for granted. Yeah, no, that's incredible. You, you're able to, uh, yeah, create these routines that, uh, sometimes may not be able to exist if you didn't have the, the jobs that you do. That's the thing. I mean, I, I worked very hard, you know, during, you know, obviously leading up to the point that, you know, that, that I had her, you know, and, and I, um, so I, I think that now I'm able to benefit from that, you know, but I also, I still have to, you know, hustle. I mean, you know, usually I'll put her to bed, you know, like last night, put her to bed and then come right back to the office until, you know, midnight or one in the morning. Sure. You know, it's just trying to shuffle time around to make it work. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Honestly, I, I really enjoyed getting to know more of your story because, uh, yeah, there was definitely a lot of nuggets in there that I had no idea about. Well, Ray, I really appreciate being a part of this. I, your your podcast is awesome and you've interviewed a lot of, you know, creative and exciting people. And I'm, I just to even be, you know, connected to that is, is an honor for me. So I appreciate that. So that was Mr. Chris Wren. Thank you to him for spending the time with us. And thank you to my friend Stephanie, publicist extraordinaire, who did a great job putting this interview together. So the producer, as always, for this show is Tom Richfield. We have more exciting record label talk to come this month. And, you know, I'm going to go back to my vacation, okay? Is that okay with you? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com. Email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And until next week, be safe, everybody. Be safe, everybody.